All right, well, we're back to Mark. If you want to turn to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 53 to 65. And the title of the message, if you want one, is The Majesty of Silence, for lack of a better message title. All right, so we'll begin in verse 53, Mark 14, and we read there, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, Well, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we of any further witness? You've heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. So, you know, we've been kind of going through the journey here. He's been through Gethsemane and his arrest. And it's now we're in verse 53 where it says they led, they've, they've bound him up and they've led him away to the high priest. And with him, when he gets there, they're all assembled. They're all assembled and waiting for him. So he's led from the garden to Caiaphas' house, and they call his house, is called a palace. So it would probably be the equivalent of today. I mean, actually, they got a, they're not for sure what it is. They think they know, and it's a pretty elaborate house for its day, especially. It'd be like one of these houses up here on US 60 that you drive by, and they got all the lights, and it looks like there's got to be at least 100 rooms in there, and you know they got tennis courts, a swimming pool, and a golf course in the backyard. But that's about what it would have been the equivalent of. So you walk up to this house, and there's a gate there. And when you walk into the gate, there's going to be a large courtyard. And above that courtyard, there would have been a balcony with rooms up above overlooking everything. And so it was one of these rooms, or it could have just been an open area. They're not sure. But Jesus is led up in there to stand trial. And below, we know, below it says, Peter is in the courtyard sitting with these servants by a fire. And he might have been able to hear and see everything that transpired. Don't know that for sure. But when you read this account, when you read what's happening here from 53, and we've already looked at the very end of this, but Mark takes us back and forth in the story. So he takes us back and forth between Peter and Jesus. So we see Jesus, it's like in a movie, we see him being led upstairs, and then the camera pans, and then it pans down, and there you see Peter warming himself by the fire. And then we're brought back up into the room, and there we go through the trial, which we're going to see today, where Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin. He's condemned and mocked, and when that's over, then it pans back down again, and we're back down watching Peter. 
denying the Lord three times, walking away from that, weeping bitterly when he's done. So why is Mark doing that? Why does he keep shifting back and forth from Jesus to Peter and Peter to Jesus? Why is he doing that? Because he's painting a vivid contrast for us there. The conduct and character of our Lord Jesus. He's painting that on one side, and here is Peter shamefully denying the Lord on the other side. It's, it's a dramatic contrast, right? Because both of them are, are, what are both of them called to do? Witness to the truth, the truth of who Jesus is. And so what we have here, it's a study of how to witness under pressure, if you want to say it that way. And Jesus comes through that. He's our example, isn't he? We talked about this. He's our example. He's our pattern. Because through all this, he's been through the garden, right? And he is steadfast. He's firm and he's fearless, even when he sits there in his silence. But he's the same way when he finally speaks. At one point, he finally speaks, breaks the silence, and that's when he boldly witnesses to the truth. I am. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And you contrast that with Peter, who's fearful, he's weak. He at one time had confessed the very thing that Jesus confessed. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God, he was asked, Jesus was asked. Peter at one time, remember back in Mark 8, Matthew 16, he said that very thing. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But now he crumbles under the pressure of a little maid. Two little maids question him, and he crumbles under that. So it's not really his finest hour that we see here. Food for thought, because the answer is still the same, because... Where does our strength and power to witness for our Lord come? We've talked about this several times. I'm just kind of reminding everybody. It comes from watching and praying. That is our only victory over the flesh, right? Because otherwise our flesh is weak. And so Jesus didn't settle what he was going to do, where his confession was going to be, where he stood with everything. He didn't wait until he got to the high priest's house to do that, did he? Where did he do that at? He did that in the garden. That's what got him through. His praying, watching, settling things in the garden got him through the test. Peter, though, what was he doing? Sleeping. So when his time came, when his hour came to take a stand, he just fell apart. He wilted under pressure. No courage and he had no power. But I want to add this in as a side note. Peter denied the Lord. We know that. And we know it was wrong. We know it was sin. We know he had to repent. He had to do all of that, right? But a man, I was reading this man named G. Campbell Morgan. Lived a little bit back in the 1940s, but he, every now and then he's got some good things to say. And I thought this was good. He said, Peter might have denied the Lord. He might have denied that he knew the Lord. He did, didn't he? Cursed and swore, I don't know that man. But we know that he did know him, didn't he? And we also know that he did love him. And how do we know that? Because where does knowing the Lord and where does loving the Lord come from? It comes from our faith, doesn't it? And what did Jesus told Peter? He says, I am going to pray for you that what? That your faith fails not. And he never lost that. He never did. He never really lost his faith, his love, and his knowledge of the Lord. Never failed. But guess what did fail? His courage, that's what failed, but not his love for the Lord. And I think that is why he was so ashamed at what he did. Because I think he denied what he really believed in his heart for fear. Now, I think 
We've all done that, haven't we? It's not a matter you don't love the Lord, but you give in out of fear. And unlike Judas, so Judas never had that. He never had saving faith. He never had a love for the Lord. He never had a true saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but Peter did. He had all of that. And so unlike Judas, there is repentance and forgiveness for people like that, isn't there? So we need to remember that because Jesus finds him later. Peter, do you love me? And what was his answer? Lord, you know, you know, I love you. You know all things and you know, I love you. And Jesus gave him another chance then, didn't he? He said, well, then feed my sheep. Man, those are encouraging words, aren't they? So just because we miss it sometime, we've been teaching on witnessing. Just because you give in to fear and don't witness, don't be like, man, I must not be saved or get under all this pressure and condemnation. We should witness for our Lord, shouldn't we, when we have opportunity, if we love him. Right. But you know that you'll know whether you really love the Lord, whether you really know him. Anyone that does knows that inside. You don't have to be talked into it. Right. Amen. So what we read here is Jesus is led to the high priest and to the other religious leaders. And I'm saying when this happens, this is probably, I mean, literally the greatest travesty of justice ever. And I mean, ever. So. First of all, I mean, they say, I'm not going to go through all this, but there's like five ways that they violated their own code of justice, so to speak, as far as how these trials are supposed to take place. But the biggest thing is, the biggest violation is, when is this trial taking place? At night, under the cover of darkness. Trials don't take place at night. Other things go on at night that aren't good. But the Supreme Court, guess what? They don't meet at night do they? To try cases, to decide cases. They meet in the daylight. And that is the first, that's the, probably one of the biggest things that takes place there. And he's led, because they're just trying to get this all done away from the crowds, in secret, get their way. They have one goal and one goal only, and that is murder, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's led away into this mob in the presence of what is called the Sanhedrin. And they're just waiting for him there. They're all already assembled at that house. They're waiting for him like a bunch of vultures. I, mean, I just was driving down the road the other day, and here's this group of vultures around this dead whatever it was, carcass. Yeah, that's what they do, right? They just surround a helpless carcass, don't they? And they take turns, and they're the most gorgeous creatures in the world, aren't they? Yeah, everybody's got a vulture on there, <laughs> walking in their entranceway. I'm being facetious, right? But they take turns biting off flesh. And that's what these guys are like, if you can picture it. They are literally like religious vultures surrounding our Lord with one purpose. They want to destroy or devour him. And Mark's been building up to this. This is like a climax that's coming in his gospel, the meeting between Jesus and the rulers, because it started clear back in chapter 3, if you all remember. Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, and of all days to do something good, he does it when? On the Sabbath. And they can't handle that. And it says at the end of that chapter, towards the end of that chapter, it says the Pharisees went forth and immediately... Here's when it begins. It says they plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. That's clear back in chapter 3. And they've been wanting to do that ever since. Things really pick up here on the last week of our Lord's life. So we can just turn back a few chapters. You're in 14. Turn back to chapter 11. We'll just go through this real quick here. But you can just see 
They're after him. So in chapter 11, this is the beginning of this Passion Week. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem comes in riding on a colt. First thing he does, he comes in and they're all praising him. Hosanna, here comes the Messiah. They don't like that. They don't like that they're hearing that. Goes home, comes back the next day. What does he do? It says he cleanses the temple. Well, this is where these guys make all their money with these money changers and all. These guys that are trying him now. He's messing with their income. So look what it says in verse 27 of chapter 11. And it says, and, and he taught saying unto them, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you, speaking to these men, have made it what? A den of thieves. And look what it says, the scribes and the chief priest heard it and sought again how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And if you go over to chapter 12, you know, in that chapter at the very beginning, he tells the parable of the wicked husbandman. And at the end of that, he says, what are they? He goes, the owner says, sends his servants. They all beat him, kill him. And he says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll have respect for him. And do they? No, they kill him. And these religious leaders, they realize, man, he's talking to us. He's got our number on this. Because look what it says in verse 12. And they sought to lay hold on him after he finished telling this, but feared the people. Again, the only reason they're not is because they fear the people. That's why everything's done at night. But look what it says, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. But they're seeking to get hold on him. They're still plotting. And if you look then at the beginning of this chapter, we're in chapter 14, look in verse 1. And it says, and after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priest and the scribes, once again, they're seeking something, seeking how they might take him. How? By craft. These guys are not somebody you would want after you. They're going to get you. And they're going to get you any way they can. And that's what they did. And they want to put him to death. But they said, not on the... Feast day, why? Lest there be an uproar of the people. So they managed to get Judas in on the game, right? And he's like, I'll get him to you. I'll get him to you at a time when everybody's not around. We won't have an uproar. You'll still be popular, fellas. So he works it out to where they get him at night. But what is this all about? This, this is a question here of power and authority. Because Jesus has come in and he's undermined the authority of the chief priest and the scribes. And how's he done that? By his teaching and they ask him questions, and he makes them look like fools in front of all the people in the temple, right? He's in the temple teaching, and people are like, they're still like, we've never heard teaching like this. And these, these men have to realize, this guy's got something we don't have. I, mean, I guarantee you they realize that. And he's popular. And the other thing is they don't like is the miracles that are taking place. Because right before on, when this happened, who did he raise from the dead? Lazarus. Oh, man, and it's being noised abroad. And they're all like, what are we going to do with this guy? What are we going to do with him? And the leader of all this says, you people are stupid. You're foolish. Don't you know? We've got to get rid of him because it's expedient that one man die and not that our whole nation be replaced. They're not worried about the nation. They're worried about their position in the nation. But that's what's going on. This young upstart, they're like, this young upstart from up in Nazareth, he is not coming in here and taking over our position or going to get us in trouble with the Romans, right? It's like they used to say in the old Romans, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. That's, that's, that's the approach these guys are taking. 
But here is the one thing that I want us to see tonight. So despite all this flurry of activity, this arrest and dragging him in there at night, despite the hatred that's manifested towards him by these people, and despite the denial by, by Peter, the one thing I think that stands out as you read this account, which is what I want us to see, is the strength, the presence, and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's things we can learn here. But that's what to me stands out when I read all that happens. He is the one figure through this whole chapter that stands out. He has dignity and power. The Son of God comes through all this because he appears on this, in a way, he appears to be a helpless victim, doesn't he? He's just being carried along by these circumstances. He's not in control of anything. Yet he's in control of everything, including himself. He never loses it. Never gets distraught, never gets overcome with fear, just keeps his dignity about him the whole time. He's in control of everything else that goes on, too. It's almost like these people are, in a sense, controlling him, but they had to be realizing we're really not in control of what's going on there. This guy is frustrating us <laughs> to a large degree. And so the first point I want to make tonight is the title of the message, The Majesty of Silence. Look what it says in verses 60 to 61. And it says in verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But what does it say, verse 61? But he held his peace and answered nothing. He held his peace and answered nothing. Now the irony of this whole situation is that the very ones who should be standing up for truth, the very ones who were responsible to live and teach the law are violating it in the most brazen way. Look what it says in verse 55. It says, And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death, and they found none. So they're seeking. That word means to hunt down. They're hunting down false witnesses. That's what it says if you read Matthew's account. They're, they're not hunting down for people to tell the truth about him. They are hunting, seeking false witnesses against our Lord. And the job of the Sanhedrin was just the opposite of that. They were supposed to prosecute false witnesses and deal with them and get them out of Israel. That's a serious thing. And if you don't mind, if you put something there in Mark 14, turn back to Deuteronomy 19. I just want us to see this. Deuteronomy 19, beginning in verse 15, it says, And one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. But look what it says going on. And if a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges, which shall be in those days. I hear the priest and the judges. That's this Sanhedrin. And it says, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. And so shall you put the evil away from you. And those that remain shall hear and fear. 
and you shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you, and thine eyes shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So in other words, if you're going to give testimony to put somebody to death, and that would be the result of your testimony, and it's found to be false, guess what's supposed to happen to you? You're supposed to be put to death. That's what it's saying. Or if you're going to find testimony that's going to cause somebody's eye to get gouged out, and it's false, you're going to lose your eye. That might make you think twice about lying, wouldn't it? That'd work real good in this country, I think. It, it would be very effective. That probably will never happen, right? Because giving true testimony is what? It's the basis of justice, isn't it? You don't have that, you have no justice at all. I mean, man, are we lacking that in America, right? And even though it still is, it's called what? What do we call that in our court systems when somebody gives false testimony or a false witness? It's called perjury. And you will do jail time. There are people that have done jail time for perjury, right? God hates it. He hates giving a false witness. Proverbs 6.19 says, These six things does the Lord hate, and one of them is a false witness that speaks lies. Proverbs 19.5 says, A false witness shall not be unpunished. And he that speaks lies shall not escape. Now, I mean, I don't know that I would assume people in here tell the truth. <laughs> I don't know that everybody does. But that's pretty serious, isn't it? God says a false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaks lies shall not escape. The ninth of the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt, we always say it, thou shalt not lie, but really it is, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And getting back to what I was saying, that's what the word clearly teaches. That is not hard. These guys are supposed to be the experts in the law, the ones that are to live it and make sure everyone else is living it. And part of that is false witnesses are not to be in our midst. And yet they're seeking for them so they can get their way. And they couldn't get two of them to agree in their lives because that's the way lying works, isn't it? That's <laughs> just the way it is. Now look what it says in verses 56 to 59. Go back to Mark 14. Now look here, for many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We've heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands. And within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. You know, is it, is it possible they're looking for all these false witnesses because they have one, they just want to destroy a man. So <laughs> is it possible that people could want to destroy a man that they would trump up Charges? <laughs> I think it's possible, isn't it? It's like, I just want to destroy this guy, and so I'm going to have a special counsel that is going to, we're going to make sure he finds something. <laughs> isn't that kind of the way it works? And when that starts happening in a nation, it's called truth is falling in the streets, right? Truth doesn't matter anymore. It's just, we've got an agenda, and we'll do whatever we have to to destroy anybody that's in our way. And that's when problems, you got major problems, right? But through all this, through all of this, though, Jesus doesn't tweet, does he? We have a problem. Some people, they just, they got to give an answer. But he doesn't, does he? Because Jesus is a Christian. <laughs> right? But what does it say? Verse 61, he held his peace 
and answered nothing. He's silent, gives no defense to the charges that are leveled against him. And why is that? So when a person's arrested, what do they tell them? You have a right to remain silent. And a lot of them do that, don't they? And why is that? Because they're wanting to protect themselves because they're told anything you say can and will be used against you. Possibly, right? So that's sometimes why people are silent. And sometimes people are silent in a court or in other, other cases because they want to protect others. Like Corey Timbun. He's like, got some people I want to protect. I don't have to talk. I'll take, the, I'll take the results, right? We can do that. Some people are silenced because they know it wouldn't do any good to say anything, right? <laughs> He'd never listen to me. And that's sort of the case here with Jesus, right? You know, um, this wasn't a court thing, but growing up, we would have family dinner together. And I found out that uh, <clears throat> everybody would have conversation, but whenever I tried to say something, nobody paid any attention. So guess what? I figured it doesn't do any good, and I'll just quit talking. I did. So I get to school. My parents would get reports back, he talks too much, and they'd be like, that can't be our son. He doesn't ever talk at home. And I talked to my dad about that later. I said, well, the reason is, is y'all would never listen to me. I just gave up trying. <laughs> so anyways, so sometimes people in a court case, they just, it's like this, this is, I'm, I'm set up, it ain't going to matter what I say. And so they just resign themselves not to say anything. But I think in the case of Jesus here, there's two reasons. And I think the reason he doesn't talk is mainly because he's innocent. He is pure in motive and deed. He doesn't need to answer them, right? And the way that this whole thing is playing out, they're showing his innocence. He doesn't even have to say anything, does he? They're contradicting themselves, and he's just sitting there in silence. They're making fools out of themselves. But he's, he's, they're demonstrating his, his innocence themselves, right? can't get two witnesses to degree. They have to keep dismissing them. And I'm saying, there is a loudest voice you're hearing in this courtroom is the Lord. He is the most eloquent one there and the loudest voice in this kangaroo court in his silence. So you, know, you just picture him sitting there. All these, they're vehemently accusing him, trying to bring these false witnesses in. I'm, however that's working out. And he's sitting through all this, not responding at all. And he's still, he's the one that comes out looking the best. They bring Jesus before Pilate, and it says they accused him of many things. These high priests, and I bring all these accusations, and even before Pilate, it says he answered nothing. And it says Pilate marveled at that. You know why? Because when you don't answer your accusers, they assume you're guilty. That's the way it would have worked. But he could see right through their deceit, couldn't he? Pilate could, honestly, after he hears enough of that. And you know what he finally says? He hears all their accusations. He hears that Jesus isn't answering. And when it's all said and done, what does he say about the Lord? I find no fault in him. That's all you see in this. You can't find fault with him. No one does, right? So the two witnesses that came forth, they seem to be saying the same thing. They took what Jesus said and twisted it. Look, look what it says, verse 58. And we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands. And within three days, they said, they heard him say, I'll build another without hands. He never said that. He never said, I will destroy this temple. What did he say? It's over in John chapter 2. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Isn't that what he really said? And John adds, that he spake of the temple of his body. They didn't get it. 
They didn't understand it. And guess what? Jesus isn't going to try to straighten them out at this point. You know why? Because he doesn't have to. They will witness his words being fulfilled because they're getting ready to destroy his body, his temple. And he will raise it up in three days, just like he said he would. So he's the new temple and he's also the pure and undefiled lamb. And just like the lamb in the Old Testament, he's passing his inspection without saying a word. Without saying a word. Didn't have to. And what we're seeing here is this is where the grace and the meekness and the majesty of our Lord. We're seeing the humiliation of our Lord. This is what he has to go through to pay a price for our sins. So he's created the universe. He's created these very people that are speaking lies about him. But he just submits to it to fulfill scripture. Psalm 109.2 says, For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They've spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries. But I give myself unto prayer, and they have rewarded me evil for good. And that's what's happened to him here. And hatred for my love, he goes on to say. So what he's doing here is he's teaching us how to deal with false accusations. Psalm 35:11 says, false witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. And that psalm goes on to say, yet these very people, when they were sick, you know what I did for them? I fasted and prayed for them, even though they treated me that way. And that's what we can learn from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The second reason Jesus was silent was he was being obedient to his father. He was. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. Like I said, Jesus was required to respond just like a lamb does when it's slaughtered. They just lie there. They don't fight. They don't curse. They don't threaten. They act dumb in all respects, mentally and vocally. They act dumb. They have no voice of self-defense. You can get on YouTube and you can see, see a lamb slaughtered if you want to. I did. It's something to watch. And that's what they do. They just put their neck out there, just like when I cut a chicken's head off. All I see is that big eye looking up at me. He didn't do anything to resist. Whack! On a thing. Went flopping around after that, but no resistance. And that's the way it is. In 1 Peter 2, it says this, For even hereunto were you called. This is us. We talked about this the other day. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, and who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. So Jesus just had to lay there and take it, so to speak. Just lay there and take it. Because we know this, one word could have wiped them all out. So really, though, he showed his supernatural strength by not responding, didn't he? 
greatest display of his strength and supernatural power, I think. So when he was lied about and reviled, it says he spoke not a word, but did what we're supposed to do. What did he do? He committed himself to his father, didn't he? And that's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? And that's what faith is, isn't it? That's how you respond to a situation. You commit your life and everything else into the Father's hand to do His will. Whatever that is, wherever that may lead us. That's simply what faith is. Romans 12, Paul tells us this, Recompense to no man evil for evil. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Amen. Not to take it in our own hands, but put it into his hands. Commit ourselves and our lives in this situation to our Heavenly Father. He's more than able to take care of it. Amen. Brings me to my second point, and that's the majesty of his glory. We talked about the majesty of his silence. I want to look at the majesty of his glory and look at verses 60 to 62. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answer thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The high priest, he knew that none of these charges that they were bringing against Jesus up to this point were going to put him to death. So he jumps in and he demands that Jesus answers his accusers. What is it these are saying against you? He's trying to get Jesus to say something that they could use against him. But he just held his peace. Didn't say a word. And I'm telling you, that had to drive that high priest crazy. This guy's not cooperating, won't say anything. So he plays the one card that he has in his hand still. His trump card, so to speak. And he does, he does this. He puts Jesus under oath. We don't have it here in Mark's account. But in Matthew's account, he says, I adjure thee by the living God. And he could do that as the high priest. He demands a straight answer from the Lord. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And I'm saying this is the climax of this trial right here. So Jesus, all through Mark, I didn't make a big deal about this, but he avoids, they call it the messianic secret. He avoids proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Because if he had earlier on, you know what, they'd have put him right in there. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for him. In John 6, they were ready to crown him king, but he wouldn't let them, right? So those demons would cry out, we know who you are. And Jesus would say, he'd tell them to shut up, wouldn't he? You're not going to say who I am. It's not time yet. But right here, here it's a matter of he knows if he confesses who he is, what's going to happen? It's going to put him to death. And so he does he direct, he's, under, he's under oath. I don't know that he respected the oath or did or didn't respect that oath, but he does answer the question directly and truthfully. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He's avoiding and saying God because they don't want to say that name. And Jesus answered, Ego me. We've talked about that. I am. Matthew and Luke said, have it said this way. Well, you said it yourself, which is the same as saying yes. That's not an evasive way of saying yes. That is saying yes. And then he explains who he is in terms of Scripture. That's who he describes himself. He combines Psalm 110 and Daniel 7.13. 
And when he says that, he says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And what that tells us there, that confession he made after he says, yes, I am who you say, he's describing himself in his glory, the majesty of his glory in three ways. He's saying he is the exalted Savior, the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. Why did he come? It talks about that all through the New Testament. He's sitting on the right hand of power because his work of redemption is done. What did he say on the cross? It is done finished. And so Psalm 110 says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And Psalm 110 is quoted more than any other psalm in the whole entire New Testament. It's quoted repeatedly. The second thing we see there, he's not only the exalted Savior, but he is the enthroned king because he says his throne is on the right hand of power. You'll see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. That speaks of his deity, his majesty, and his power. So listen up here. Think about what's going on here. The Lord of glory, the Lord of glory has to submit himself to this degrading trial, this mockery, these lies and the humiliation of these petty, earthly rulers who think they have power. Caiaphas, he thinks he's something. And Pilate, the governor of Judea, and you read about his history, he was an arrogant, brutal, dictator-type ruler. After this is all over, he, in three years, he is sent back to Rome. He's in big trouble. He was always in big trouble. He wasn't a good ruler at all. Sent back to Rome, never heard from again. Never heard from again. And he wouldn't have been known ever, because name another governor of Judea besides him. Would have never been known, this petty little ruler, except he's in the Apostles' Creed. And 1 Timothy 6 mentions him by name, right? But think about it. These two are talking this arrogantly and sitting in judgment of the Lord of glory. Caiaphas is saying, do you answer me nothing? Saying that to Jesus. And Pilate says, when Jesus wasn't answering, he finally says, are you not speaking to me? He said, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Oh, they're going to find things are different, aren't they? But think about that. He had to submit to that. That would be very difficult to do, wouldn't it? I think it would be very difficult. And the last thing we see that's a threefold glory that's being demonstrated here is he is the coming judge. It says he's coming in the clouds of heaven. That's a quotation from Daniel 7.13. And it speaks about his dominion over all the nations. He is going to be the judge of all the earth. So in essence, what he's telling these high priests and these religious rulers that are questioning him, you may be sitting in on judgment on me now, but one day I'm letting you know it's, it's a prophecy, but it's also in a sense a veiled threat, I guess you could say. But he's saying one day these roles will be reversed. So right now you're gloating, you're treating me shamefully, you're venting your hatred, but every, everything, one day it's all going to be flipped around. It's all going to be reversed and turned around and the shoe is going to be on the other foot. Because we know this from Philippians, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in heaven, 
things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's telling them, one day you will see. Right now, you, you fellas, you're blind. And that's why you're doing what you're doing to me. You're blind. And isn't that the way the world is today? They do not see the Lord like we see the Lord. They're blind. But one day they will see, won't they? Everyone's going to see. And that's to the, the last point I want to look at, and that is the rejection of Jesus, verses 63 to 65. And when he says that, this says, The high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we of any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to buffet him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. You know, the, the high priest rips his clothes. He's really not supposed to do that. But when you tear your clothes <laughs> back in that day, it's supposed to symbolize a broken heart. You're brokenhearted over what you just heard. I don't think this man was brokenhearted over what he just heard. I think he was thrilled inside his heart. This is just a big show. Because he's got Jesus right now. He, that's exactly, he couldn't have heard anything better than that. That's exactly what he wanted to hear. And he's like, we don't need any more witnesses. You heard it. Blasphemy. Come on, guys. What should we do with this man? And they're all, they're all crying out, death. He's guilty of death is what they said, right? Then the three-ring circus begins because they're mocking the one that claims he's a king. They're mocking the one that says he's a prophet. And they begin to spit, it says, in his face. And that is universally the most degrading thing that you can do to a person spit in their face because the face is a place of honor isn't it so you spit in someone's face slap him in the face you hit him in the face you do any of those kind of things and you're not in christian circles and you've got a riot on your hands nobody takes that do they those are fighting words in the world right you know i saw this video one time ray comfort the Middle East, I mean, that's like a popular thing to do, I guess, because I saw this video one time. Ray Comfort was open-air preaching in Tel Aviv, had a crowd around him, and it was at nighttime, and he's preaching about Jesus being the Son of God and the Savior, whatever all he was preaching, what he preaches, and they're calling him a blasphemer, and then you see it right there on video. They just guy starts you know, spit right at him, and he's aiming right for him, and Ray, you see him, he ducks, and he hits the people behind him. Happens, I think, three times. I'm saying that it's still the way it would be, right? I'm going to spit in his face for blasphemy. That's what they would do. I mean, you think about it, spitting, and this is Jesus spitting in his face. That's the greatest show of contempt and indignation you could show anyone. I mean, we spit on the ground, and they're treating his face like that. The Lord, for no reason. But they're filled with demons, and these demons have been wanting to get at Jesus. They're getting at him through these men, and they're all venting right now. And here's the amazing thing. He just stood there and took it. For our sake, he did. Not because he had to. Stood there and took it. Isaiah 50, verse 7 says, I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. It says, I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore 
have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Right there, he committed himself to the Lord. He said he didn't cover his face, and he just stood there and let them do what they were going to do. Because that's what the Lord told him he had to do. Then they blindfolded him, hit him with their fist and open hands. Prophesy, tell us who's the one that just hit you. I don't think you'll be seeing you coming in the clouds of heaven anytime soon. I'm sure that's what they were saying to him, things like that. Think you're a prophet because they're mocking him as a prophet. Now here's the thing, they don't know what we know. We've been reading Mark, and three of Jesus' prophecies are being fulfilled at this time and soon will be fulfilled. Mark 10 says this, Behold, Jesus prophesied this, We go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered unto the chief priests, to the scribes. They shall condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. So we know what these guys that are doing this to the Lord didn't know. And you know what we know? That every prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ has ever uttered has come to pass. So we know the one that has just uttered that he is coming back in the clouds. That is going to happen in glory and judgment. He's coming back. And we were talking about this last night at our family devotions. When he comes back, that's going to be a mixed bag, isn't it? So for those that are his and those that believe in him, it says he's going to come back. They will rejoice and he will be glorified in him. That's what it says in 2 Thessalonians. But for them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says he's coming back in vengeance, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God. For them, it will be a day of terror. Don't want to be on that side, do we? Amen. Well, what I want to say in looking at all this, in looking at all this, can you see the majesty and dignity and glory and meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ shining through this mock trial, through this travesty of justice? That's what I see when I read this. So because his silence, he wasn't sitting there because he was afraid, because he was weak, or because he just resigned himself to what was happening. But his silence and the way he carried himself and what he said and what he did was really a sign of his strength. And he gave us an example of what we can do when we commit our lives to the Father and commit our futures to the Father, no matter what men may do to us. Right? Because he was totally at their mercy, so to speak. Because we have to do, we have to trust what? Just like he did. We have to trust that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Isn't that what it says in Romans 8? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep. For the slaughter. That's what we are as Christians. That's what we should be. And Jesus did what? He professed a good confession, didn't he? Declared in truth and boldness in the midst of a pack of wolves. It talks about in Psalm 22, the strong bowls of Bashan. Knowing what was coming, knowing what they would do to him, he did it anyways. This is who I am. I'm not going to deny who I am. Knowing that the spitting, the hitting, and the mockery was all coming his way. And yet, through all that, 
He kept his dignified strength, didn't he? Amen. By the grace and power of God. And he did it, like I said. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for you and me. Without a word, he took our shame. The majesty of silence. Amen? Amen. But Father, we just thank you once again, Lord. I just ask you'll cause us not to forget what we've been hearing from your word and the gospel of Mark and what you had to endure not only in the garden, not only in your arrest, not only in your betrayal, not only in the denial, but also just in this humiliation, Lord, that you let the kings and rulers of the earth gather around you and, and treat you however they wanted, Lord. And yet you kept your dignity and, and you took it for our sake, took our punishment, that's part of it, and you took it for our sake, to the glory of God the Father. And we just thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. I just ask you, Lord, you'll continue to have your hand on this church, the people here. You'll have our hearts open to your word, that this word, Lord, will begin to take effect in our hearts, that we won't just be coming and tasting messages, Lord, but that we'll actually allow this word and your glory, your majesty, that you're the one that we should follow and give our hearts to and begin to seek you in prayer to honor your word, that that will begin to happen here, Lord. You'll, you'll begin to do that work. And that we can come become a people that will glorify your name on this earth in these last days. And I just thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.